everyone. And yes, we are back for another episode of Regenerative Landscapes. Uh, I was MIA last week. So the guys uh, went and had a party without me. Um, actually, no, they they had a really good talk about uh, the background behind the idea of their company, uh, where they see themselves going, what they're going to be doing. And I'm hoping we get that put together for uh, another episode or a part of episode or something uh, in the near future. So that was pretty cool. But I am back, uh, maybe much to somebody's dismay. I don't know. Um, and of course, Dan and Kevin are here as well. And today we're going to tackle a big a topic that uh, gets a lot of factions on two sides of the coin, invasives. Dun, dun, dun. This is where Dan can use his deep voice. Invasives. Invasives. Really? <laughs> That's all you got? <laughs> okay. Invasives. There we go. If it's all right with you guys, I thought because it's such a controversial topic with a lot of people, we'd kind of get into what each of the hosts feel constitutes an invasive because it is a little bit subjective. Um, it's not as clear cut as saying, well, this is an, an invasive and this isn't because there's so many variables. It could depend on the area, it could depend on whether people eat it or not, or how it's affecting things. So yeah, I guess we'll start with Dan. What are your thoughts on, like, what does invasive mean to you, I guess? Learning in school, like, I think, yeah, it's a very subjective, well, I think we, the definition of weeds, I think, is more the subjective term than maybe invasive. So invasive, I think, is kind of a species that's either, like, gets into, like, a native range uh, and it's like uncontrolled or unintended, uh, spreading mm. everywhere. Unintended. Good. Um, well, like outside, sorry. Yeah. Outside its own, outside its native range. So like, you know, mm -hmm. something like Canada thistle that we have here, um, you know, it could be natural over kind of Eurasia on that side of the <laughs> globe, but then here it's invasive because yeah, it's come out of its native range over there. And so many things have come over here that, or out of their native range and now become invasive or we've kind of just learned to adapt or they have become naturalized and this is over maybe <laughs> thousands of years uh by this point but um yeah like i i consider it as something that's uh an organism that is unintended uh or like uncontrolled uh gets spread in an area that it's not really supposed to be spread yeah <laughs> yeah and it's and it could be plant or or animal right like it could be a number of things but but yeah, no, that's a good take on it. How about you, Kevin? Uh, what do you feel kind of constitutes an invasive in your mind? Um, uh, talking about invasive species, it first came to, I, I, I first got uh, in contact with invasive species was when I was still back in China. And then the invasive species there, they were talking about, remember one year it was really bad. It's the Canada golden rod. So someone Over there, they wow. came back, yeah. Someone from Canada they uh, brought some goldenrod into their home and was planting them on the balcony and thinking that it it looks re really pretty. And then after a week, after it flowered and set seed, 
it was everywhere. everywhere in that community. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, then people were just saying, oh, yeah, um, you should burn the Canada Golden Rod. That's when it first came to me. I'm like, okay, that's invasive species. That time I didn't actually know it was from Canada uh, because of the translation and those stuff. It's after I came here, I uh, was in the class uh, about the native species. It's actually native here, right? And then yeah. I did the translation. I realized, oh, that's actually invasive in China. That's the mm-hmm. stuff they are talking about. That's when I realized, okay, a plant that's native to one place, it could be very aggressive in another place, just take over the, the entire ecosystem. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, actually, that's a really good point because, um, like I was saying, the, the whole invasive thing is somewhat subjective because what is native and happy to grow in one area it could be very frowned upon and very invasive in another. So, And that's actually a very interesting case because over here we complain so much of, I hate to say it, but so many of our invasives have come from Asia. And so uh, the flip side, it's like our little Canadian went and invaded China. <laughs> so that's, it just depends on which side of the coin you're on, right? I know for me, originally, like more of a, an original um, definition, I guess, is usually that the plants that do not originate in the area that they're growing, they're um, aggressive enough in their habits that they will push native species out and disrupt the dynamic of an ecosystem some, somewhere else. But what's been brought to light in my mind about a more modern look at another definition of invasives there are actually native plants that in optimal conditions can spread out of control and push out other native species as well and still disrupt the dynamic of an ecosystem. So now I've come to a point where I, in my mind, I guess I feel like an invasive is just any species that tips the balance of an ecosystem to the point where it's spreading so rampantly the ecosystem cannot handle it, absorb it, or or fight back against it. And it's just it, wreaking havoc with the ecosystem, right? And so to me, it doesn't necessarily mean native or foreign anymore. It's just how aggressive it is, how does it spread, and how does it affect the ecosystem that would constitute whether it's invasive in my mind or not. But that being said, um, most counties have lists of what they deem to be the biggest invasives on their lists. And those ones are generally not from the resident area. They've come in from somewhere foreign, but uh, that that can vary from county to county. So I guess a good point is to make sure you check with your own county as what's considered invasive there, because just like Kevin was saying, something that you think is pretty and, and fine in one place could be completely invasive in another place and you could be making a big mess of things without even knowing it. Another point I had was how invasive spread. And I think, Kevin, you mentioned, because you used to do some work with invasive species with the waterways or something. Oh, you're yeah, talking aquatic about- invasive species. I worked with the Alberta government environment and parks. Mm-hmm. to uh, check for uh, Eurasian water milfoil. What's the other one? The mussels. Mm-hmm. They're really bad in Manitoba. Really, and- really bad. That's why they set up those programs in Alberta um, around the border. Every time the, the yeah. boats or watercraft come inside, they just check them because uh, even if they're 
dead, they can still go mm-hmm. into the system and spread. Yeah, which goes with the, the how invasive sp- spread. That's one of the ways is through waterways and also through vehicles, whether it's boats, planes, trains, you know, like there's, we're pretty much global now. That, that's one, I guess, negative about us being, being able to be accessible to, to all over the world now is we can also bring <laughs> these unwanted uh, plants and animals with us all over too. And sometimes it's not even intentional. Even things like the horticultural industry, there could be species existing in the soil with the plants that they're shipping. With the food industry, of course, we get a lot of our tropical fruits and vegetable stuff imported. Things come in with that. A lot of people have been told about the pine beetles and everything. So, of course, if you're taking your wood back and forth, that can spread uh, a lot of these invasives as well. Everything from whether it's natural or unnatural, animals and and humans can transport uh, invasives, like whether it's seeds and stuck in your clothing or, or whether something's eaten something and then pooped it out somewhere else. Um, so not all invasives are spread in a negative way either. Like wild animals can spread invasives as well. And, you know, you don't even know until it's become a problem. I don't know if there's any other ones that I missed. Is there any other ones that you guys can think of of how invasives may spread? I remember I read an article before saying that um, the uh, the number one way of spreading invasive species is actually from the agri- agricultural seeds. Like the mm-hmm. even the seeds we oh, buy from the grocery store, those burpees and yep. those kind of stuff. Because I remember one, one year I was growing um, Chinese cabbage. It wasn't even invasive. I was just growing that for fun. And then it seed. And I just didn't care about that. Second year, it was coming back everywhere. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I just stopped doing that. Yeah. But no and one th- ever said it's not listed anywhere saying that Chinese yeah. cabbage is invasive here. Well, and the funny thing is, is... You would think horticultural experts there in the know, but they they make mistakes too. Sometimes they may mispackage a seed sent to the wrong place or whatever. Um, other times they they just don't know because it's hard to keep up on which seeds you can send where, especially if they're an international seed supplier. Because again, what they could send here might not be the same as what they can send to Europe, might not be the same as what they can send to the States. And it's really hard to keep up on all that stuff. Uh, not to mention the fact that, like you say, for agricultural crops or whatever, there may be a certain degree of weed seeds that get in with the actual crop that they're trying to plant. And so it just gets put in the ground accidentally with the with the seed too. Yeah, good points there. Dan, did you have anything else to add? Um, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> He's like, I was out it- spreading some already by myself. Nobody knows. It, it spread by wind, <laughs> by water, by Oh, yes, animals. by wind. There you go. Ding, ding. Wind. We didn't mention wind. And that one's, again, one that we can't control, uh, at least presently. And then, yeah, of course, the big one's humans, whether it's intentional yeah. or not. Because, I mean, some people just like to, like we were talking about with the cat of goldenrod, how, like, <laughs> you know. It's pretty. I'll like, plant it yeah. here. And then. We'll and take it over. I, that could that could be all right as long as you don't let it set seed or if it spreads by rhizomes or whatever to let it out of its pot, right? But but, but I mean you're taking like, a big uh, risk though. Exa- you are because you, all it takes is one day if you're late on pruning it or whatever, and who knows? And also not to mention the fact that you will have other wild visitors, whether they're pollinators or bird like birds or bees or 
um, possibly other creatures that come along and eat it. And then are they going to deposit seeds somewhere else? Like, yeah, you just, you don't want to go down that road, right? Because I may or may not have something that's not supposed to be here, but mm-hmm. I'm growing it inside. And I know it's, it can spread aggressively, but again, I'm growing it inside. So And it's a science an experiment, issue. right? <laughs> Tell me, what is it? Sort of. I could, what? What is, is it? Is it? Yeah. We're curious now. Now you got to tell us. I don't want to. I don't want to tell the if this is true or not. Of course. If it's true or not. Well, now I'm so curious. You're a, you're a scientist, I'm guy. Not can... That I have something that I'm not supposed to have here. <laughs> yes, but um, if you're if you're finding methods bamboo. on how to kill it, oh, oh well, that's fine. Yeah, bamboo <laughs> would be fine here because it. I mean, even the really really hardy stuff it would probably die back quite a lot and wouldn't really spread too much in our climate currently, I would think. No. <laughs> yeah. No. Seriously, what's his scenario? I'll just come eat them because they're delicious. Bamboo shoots. There you <laughs> okay. Go. Anyway, just keep it's it in like a pot. It's not like by rhizomes. No, yes, just keep it in a pot. Okay. that much of an issue because, I mean, they only send seeds like once every couple decades or whatever. Yeah. Um, I'd be like in in Ontario or, or BC. I'd be more worried. Alberta. It's 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 gonna be. I think keep it at bay just from the weather. <laughs> so. I don't know. Like black black bamboo, the particular one that I have is pretty hardy. Well, I guess we'll find out. But yeah, keep it potted mm. in the meantime. Keep it pruned. I want to put some in my backyard in the future. <laughs> Save some for me. I'm gonna now. Try look it what out. you've done. <laughs> yeah. So my next point is it takes an ecosystem to control an invasive. Like, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. Oh, look, there's a child. It, in this part, it takes an ecosystem to control invasive. And the meaning behind that is ecosystems are really tightly woven interactive systems. So if the ecosystem is healthy, everything within it can work together to help block or pre- prevent an invasive from moving in, or at the very least keep them at base so they're not repopulating and spreading and growing crazy right versus if the ecosystem is damaged whether it's erosion um, extinction of one or more species or pollutants or whatever that can weaken the ecosystem and the species within it so it allows invasives to get more of a foothold to move in right so uh what are your guys thoughts on that uh yeah like i mean yeah you do need the whole ecosystem kind of working together to both kind of promote kind of the stuff that's already native to that ecosystem and that range of those organisms. But then also it helps to eradicate, mitigate, kind of push out the stuff that, yeah, we don't really want that there. And especially with ones that are like very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can have an ecosystem that naturally does that and you don't really need much human uh, intervention, you know, you have a good ecosystem doing its job. Yeah, well, that's like our, kind of our whole purpose is if if we put a good regenerative landscape together, everything, all the components are working together so that you shouldn't have as many issues with the the weeds and that kind of thing already versus if it's really poorly put together, something's out of balance and then the, the weeds are just looking for a, a foothold to get in there, right? And, and the thing too is that, well, and in that context of regenerative landscapes, we're doing like a, you know, human designed Mm-hmm. ecosystem and your yard it's never going to be 100 percent weed free no. weed 
what are considered weeds, which, because right? again, that, that's the difference too, in my opinion, is there's invasives and there's weeds. And I think weeds is a very subjective term that, you know, something like a dandelion, I think a majority of lay people would say dandelions are weeds. Yeah. And to some, it might be depending on what you're looking for, for your yard or where you see dandelions in a you know soccer field or something like that. But to me personally, I think dandelions are pretty beneficial and I don't really see them as weeds. Well, yeah, I think, well, I guess, see, weeds could become invasives if they become problematic, but if if they're, if they're kept in a certain, at a certain level or in a certain area or whatever, they're all right. Like you say, dandelions where we, we can eat them or whatever. It's only when they escalate out of control, then they enter into that invasive category. But like I was saying before, is it seems like a very fluid dynamic changing lists like you can't you can't just say this particular species is always going to be invasive or always going to be a weed or always going to be a perfectly fine native because uh, actually getting into my next point that'll show this all can change depending on circumstances or places or you know a bunch of variables and then suddenly your your plant that let's say was perfectly fine as a native in one habitat has suddenly gone rampant and become invasive somewhere else so it's again very subjective right so um yeah so that getting into that uh i actually this is i was listening to another podcast um if anybody's interested it's the growing greener podcast and it was a episode about invasives and climate change and this is really cool so again we're all about climate change right now lots of things going on with uh, climatic shifts and they were talking about how with situations like the invasives, it's really throwing everything for a big loop because now species have been, some species have been crawling in, like, again, from all the people and the, all the traveling around and waterways and everything. It's been happening for centuries now, right? So that's not new. But what is new is a lot of these, they call them sleeper species. They were maybe barely hanging on trying to grow and because it's not their native habitat they were struggling and and everything was kept in check but now because of the climatic shift some areas are becoming more mild than they used to be some areas are getting more water than they used to have or they're getting drier or like all these shifts so a lot of these sleeper species are now able to wake up because the habitat is becoming more conducive to to what they like to grow in and so it it's not like something's mysteriously popped up overnight. It's just that the conditions are right now that they're suddenly growing, uh, populating these areas. And now they're getting out of control. Whereas before uh, this situation just wasn't good for them. Right. And uh, I found that a a little bit, uh, well, I don't know about scary, but (laughs) just a little disconcerting because now, to know that there's a lot more things out there that weren't a problem that could easily just explode just because of the climatic changes. It's like, ah, uh, so. Do you have uh, an example of kind of one that's local? I'm just trying to think of one now. Well, they were saying, um, now this is going to be an, an animal one as opposed to plant one, but it was oh, just one funny. that, it's just one that stood out. So not that it's deemed invasive yet, but it is definitely non-native and it's moving farther north. There is a hibiscus bee. That's what it was. So there's this little hibiscus bee 
that's mm-hmm. been found down in the in the southerly states for quite some time. I'm not I'm not sure with a name like that if it was even native to the states to start with, but at least it was staying down in the in the southern states because it likes it warmer. But now it's moving farther north because everything seems to be getting more mild coming up this way. So they've actually been citing them. Um, I don't think in Alberta yet, but possibly BC, Ontario, you know, kind of one zone more mild than us. And well, yeah, because that's pretty, like, because I think their range, yeah, isn't their range kind of more, um, I'm just, it's in the states-wise, isn't it kind of more like on the Carolinas, kind of even down to like Florida, Texas, kind of like all that East yeah, Coast. Yeah, like sort it's, of. it's, I think and so. Like it, Midwest a little bit they're too. more, um, I, t- uh, subtropical, not tropical, but maybe subtropical would be the term. But the fact that they're migrating this far up means that, um, Sure, they might be adapting a little bit, but a lot of it is the way the climate's shifting in their favor. And not that those little bees have anything wrong with them or anything, but how are our natives going to adapt to them coming in? Are they Mm -hmm. going to be competing for similar food sources? Are they going to be competing for territory? Are they going to be able to get along and share which ones are going to be able to procreate and grow their populations and which ones are going to fizzle off, right? So it's, mm. it's things like that that make you wonder. Because, um, yeah, I hadn't thought about the whole climate change <laughs> again affecting something else. Like it, everything keeps coming back to it. It affects so many things and people don't realize how everything's just so interconnected. But, yeah, it'll be interesting to see in the next, even in the next few years, what species possibly die out or, or reduce because they can't handle the climate that's in that area, even if they were native, things change too quickly and they can't handle it versus invasives that are moving in or these sleeper species that weren't a problem and then they take off and become a problem, right? So those mm-hmm. are things to take in mind, keep in mind. Now that brings me to, again, it's it's going to be up to the individual to determine what they view is invasive or not, and also what the uh, bylaws stipulate in your county as to what's on their list. But methods to control or eradicate invasives when required. I'm sure both of you guys have a whole list of different methods and things that you can do. So I'll let you guys start with that, and then I'll just polish it up. <laughs> well, cool. Just Throw us right into it. Why don't well, you? I figured with what you do, because you, you've dealt with so much of the weed control and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that, I'm, um, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Yeah, like, I mean, I think the, I don't want to say the go-to one, but kind of the first one that comes to mind is your uh, herbicide or like pesticide spring. And I mean, there's so many different kinds that work for different organisms and different ways of kind of getting into these organisms, whether it be something that's kind of like on the surface or something that's more um, uh, systematic. Um, there's pros and cons to that. And in my personal opinion, if I don't have to use pesticide or herbicide, like pesticide, I don't want to, like I mm-hmm. won't. But in some cases, sometimes it, a, it's the more economical uh, choice for uh, eradicating an organism uh, and be it, I mean, tying in with economics too, uh, just like time-wise, sometimes it's just quicker to do a pesticide spray on a certain area than to do another method, like uh, something mechanical, like, you know, like manual labor, like for, say, if you had a patch of canned thistle, 
yeah, it'd be nice to be able to spray the whole thing. But if maybe you're trying to be more sustainable or, or you're able to and still be pretty economically like feasible, then uh, hand pulling could be another option too for something like a candle thistle or something, some sort of plant organism that you're able to kind of hand pull and be mm-hmm. less, um, less reliant on uh, using chemicals. Well, on I mean, the other thing too is because uh, a lot of environmental advocates will totally frown on herbicides or pesticides of any kind, but aren't some herbicides and pesticides actually derived from natural occurring substances anyway? So as long as they're applied in the right situation, because they're probably concentrated and everything else. But if, if you're focusing on a certain species, let's say, or something like um, broadleaf weeds or something like that, are there situations where it could be fair, fairly safe, environmentally speaking, to use versus possibly not being able to get the job done by traditional like hand pulling or whatever methods? I don't know. You, again, oh, oh yeah. Know. Like, I mean, I mean, this is somewhat natural. I mean, it's still kind of a concoction made in the lab, but like vinegar, like I know mm-hmm. that's kind of a old wives tale of put some vinegar on a weed species or a species that you don't want in an area and they'll kind of just <laughs> somewhat like burn the plant off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there, there are pros and cons to doing <laughs> burning a plant like that. Uh, but just even the chemical itself, like vinegar, uh, I think that's pretty uh, safe and somewhat sustainable compared to other things that are uh, being used. But the at least the one downside that I can think of right now is um, making your soil, if you are spraying like a canda thistle or whatever uh, noxious weed that you're uh, trying to eradicate or control, uh, your soil, if you use too much, like if you don't plan a court, that's why there's so much that has to go into if you are going to use pesticides or herbicides to plan uh, accordingly and do a very thorough uh, job of planning out how much pesticide you need to use. Mm-hmm. Um, like ratios and, and things. That- yeah, because you're so, if you were to use like a high concentrated uh, vinegar solution, you can make your soil very acidic and then that can mm-hmm. lead to a whole uh, raft of other issues. Yeah, so sure. you might have got rid of the plant, but then now you have the super acidic <laughs> soil and then now you can't really grow much there. Or there might be some weeds that really like that acidic soil, and then now you just have this new uh, weed or pest problem. Uh, yeah, so you, have in, to, so you have to really plan it through. And of course, when we're talking about vinegar, I, I believe we're talking about the high test industrial. Like it's it's super concentrated. Your your home in your pantry vinegar would not have the same effect, I don't think. Yeah, because like I mean, I've I've used both. Like I mean, I've used just kind of whatever you can find at the grocery store, and like that kind of works uh, fine for some things. I, I mean, for most things but then yeah i've also used the industrial strength uh vinegar which is again it's just a what is it like almost like uh 20 percent more concentrated than regular vinegar which doesn't sound like a lot but definitely makes a big difference it is in your plant (laughs) yeah because like i've i've sprayed a patch with this industrial stuff and i think it took maybe a few hours before you could <laughs> before Especially you actually saw the results like, it, like <laughs> yeah. it was that quick where some herbicides you know can take a few days or weeks even to actually see results so it is pretty fast acting but then i say again that that's usually what it usually what it's doing it's, it's kind of just a broadly surface uh, it's not systematic so it's not actually going into the plant all the way through to actually get down to uh the root Absolutely. systems if you want to yeah. get rid of that it's just very broad surface level it's burning off this whole plant so yeah if you want to kill like a whole kind of the top parts of a plant 
then yeah, like I I think it does a pretty <laughs> pretty decent job. But then so of basically course, stopping it from setting seed or or starving it so that it's uh, much less like it, it won't have the strength to to keep spreading and everything. It, it knocks it back a lot, right? <laughs> so yeah, and but then yeah, like what you're saying, uh, for people if you are considering herbicides or pesticides or whatever this is where you really need to have a lot of thought and planning going into it so get somebody certified in that area to advise you uh a lot of these i mean if it if you're getting out of the uh the natural stuff i mean the the high test stuff you, you need to have certification up being yang to even touch it anyway so i again all of us would advise to stay away from that if at all possible but if if you have to use any of this kind of stuff um, get certified people like, like Dan, um, Kevin, I don't know if he's, if he's got certification for that kind of stuff, but, um, make sure somebody's certified and that you can get some good advice on, on using it. Because if you use it wrong, that can mess up your system way more than those invasives ever did to start with. <laughs> yeah. So. And, uh, are we still, uh, talking about other methods? Oh yeah. There's a whole list that, so the, okay. basically the, the herbicide pesticide is is one, and of course you got into the hand pulling, which most people are familiar with, as long as you can ID your plants properly and disposal. I bet you can say something on disposal of once you've hand weeded those those plants as well, because yeah, because yeah, even if you hand pull again, so I, I use Canada thistle because that's just the most common one it's that we have here. It's a good good example, um, <laughs> and it's it's I think most people have seen it or know of it but uh yeah with canada thistle uh on top of uh uh re reproducing by seeds uh, it also reproduces by uh underground uh parts of stuff like rhizome like underground root systems like rhizomes um so and with that even if you hand pull it and you get you know 90 percent of that plant out of the ground if you even like cut like just a snip, I, I forget what the side, like let's say like an inch or something, like you cut yeah. an inch off of that rhizome and it, for whatever reason, it gets blown onto like a soil patch. It could still have the Take potential to regrow. Yeah. And then now you got a new plant and then that, and with Canada thistle, I think it shoots like, you know, tens of thousands of seeds. And, and that's the thing is that it's more, it's more likely to be reproduced. Like a Canada thistle plant is going to be reproduced by underground like rhizome parts mm -hmm. but not to say that it can't also uh reproduce by seeds it's just the germination rate with the seeds is pretty low but yeah. i mean it's still a possibility especially when it sends out that many seeds and that's one of its i mean that's how that plant kind of or why that plant developed that way is that it shoots that many seeds because it knows that you know over time or like it's learned over time that like it grows better with <laughs> rhizomes than having than by seed dispersal but yeah. having ten thousand seeds it definitely uh, increases Helps. its chances yeah. of it basically doesn't have its eggs on one basket it's like one way or another come hell or high water I'm going to reproduce so uh, mm -hmm. uh, yeah so you want to be really careful in that and then so that's why even when you're hand pulling weeds once you pull them out disposing of them is another thing so you either want to bag them up and take them to an appropriate disposal site in some cases you could compost or burn but you've got to be really careful with that because like again this example of the can of thistle they're really tough and just simple burning or composting might not have the high enough heat 
to actually kill off those seeds or those little bits of root or whatever. And then you think you've got everything all taken care of. You go compost in your garden and, hey, look, I just grew another crop of thistles. Woohoo! So, so yeah. yeah sometimes careful. seeds can lay dormant for years on end time. in the seed bank in a yep. certain area and then... No, it's crazy just one, people, one year, one people, time where the conditions yeah, are favorable. The magic you know, just, year. Yeah. 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 Because people have been very surprised to find out like, oh, I haven't had, you know, whatever it is, um, pigweed or something. Haven't had this stuff in here for forever and ever and ever. And all of a sudden when you're, well, that's because those little seeds just keep getting tilled around your soil and they just sit there waiting and waiting and waiting. And when finally the conditions are right, they come up and boom, 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 boom. Then they're everywhere. Right. So, so yeah, but yeah, so that there's manual, like the hand weeding or in some cases cutting of the plants, because if you stop them from producing a seed, they, they'll be done and they won't uh, reproduce. Maybe they're an annual or biennial or something. You can also, I think Kevin Mowing. will probably like this one. The, uh, you can eat uh, some of these invasives to help control populations as well. Cause again, if you can stop them from setting seed, dig them up or pick them or whatever it can reduce the population as well because kevin was talking about uh shepherd's purse a, a few episodes ago i think and uh yeah that that can be a viable way uh you just have to be careful on again some of these seeds can pass right through the human's <laughs> digestive tract and end up going out the other side and seeding that way and some of the things would have to be cooked or handled appropriately first but it is a method that could help control stuff. And also, hey, it provides food. So, Kevin, do you have uh, another method to control invasives that you can think of? Uh, I think that has pretty much covered everything. Um, well, I would say natural controlling, like not using herbicide, but using the natural ingredients. Like mm -hmm. um, he talked about uh, vinegar and uh, pesticide. I'm thinking I heard that hot water, it can kill the weed too, right? For, for some, like yes. The, yeah, the boiling hot water for certain species. And also another one uh, on top of my mind, it's uh, just cover the whole area up using like a, a cover crowd or something. Yeah, yeah. That, yeah that's a too. natural controlling method. But that thing, you have to do it for the entire area. It's not selective. It's just for the entire area. The thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. And uh, previous podcast, you talked about um, the biocontrol, introducing another invasive species to control that invasive species but this also <laughs> problem, start a whole, problem yeah. related to that because yeah it's like groundhog day just keeps you happening can, over and over yeah you can introduce a bunch of chinese to eat the food <laughs> the invasive species here but then those chinese they become invasive here they take over the yeah when they city. run out of food <laughs> then they start eating other people and you know it's just all bad <laughs> No, that's funny. But yeah, along with those other methods, uh, so control burning can work in some circumstances. Again, not all plant material is is killed off by control burning. So it's really important to know the particular species you're after or, or whether it's animal, because like we were talking about the mussels or some of these other species that are invasive that are animal as well. Um, you've got to know all about their dynamic so that you know how to hit them hard and, and how to properly get rid of them because you don't want to unknowingly be either letting them continue to procreate or spreading them around even worse. 
Um, one of the more modern things that people are using is controlled grazing, actually, for a lot of invasives. But goats are considered the best because they digest all the material, so there's no seeds that come out the other end. The other thing is they can be somewhat trained to browse particular plant items because it would really suck if you turn them loose and then they ate all the rare indigenous plants and um, left the weeds standing, right? <laughs> Slap some molasses on some canned thistle mm, and train those good. cows to get them. But the goats, um, they're also being smaller. They are less likely to uh, compact or erode, erode the soil uh, when they're managed correctly as well, because they, you know, unfortunately cows are just bigger and so they're going to have more weight per foot and uh they are can you sometimes fat make shaming sense. cows yeah well i love <laughs> i love cows don't get me wrong but there's a time and a place for them i guess whereas the goats can just and goats can also go up uh steep inclines and stuff so if you can't if if a human can't get in somewhere to hand weed the goat might be able to right so it still gives you an option um so that's something with the goats and the other yeah, thing they're a little is, more adaptable <laughs> oh yeah but I mean, you still you still have to manage them. That's why they have shepherds and everything, right? But because if you have too many goats on one spot for too long, they will start eating the other plants that are desirable or overgrazing, et cetera, et cetera. And obviously, you don't want them running rampant and getting hit by cars or who knows what. I guess <laughs> you got to watch them. But that that can be a method as well. Um, and then going back to you were talking about cover crops. Another thing is a little bit more of a man-made blocking out the light. If it's if it's all one area and you don't have to be selective, you can lay down like thick black rubber sheeting or, or you know, mulch, uh, or, something, mulch yeah. or something like that. And for some species, not all, but for some species, if you block out the light, that's enough to bake them and, and uh, stifle them off too. So... So there's a lot of methods you can use to control or eradicate your invasives. Quite often you have to use more than one if you've really got a problem. But the other thing is, again, to be to, to educate. So invasive recognition, learn to ID these plants so that you know what is considered invasive in your area and what isn't. Look at your own needs. Like, is it invasive in my situation? Or, you know, having a few dandelions in your lawn, is that really considered invasive? you know, it's, it's probably not that big of a deal. Also, there's lots of formats and, and educational materials available to, to teach you not just the ID, but also the idiosyncrasies of each invasive so that you can find out if you have to control or eradicate one, what's the best method or combination of methods to go about doing it because different strokes for different folks, it doesn't all work the same across the board. Actually, there's Unfortunately, it'll, it'll be probably over by the time this podcast gets released. But there is the, what is it, Invasive Species Virtual Conference from March 12th to 19th this year, uh, put on by the Edmonton and Area Land Trust. I think you have to be a member, and it does cost money. But if you're really interested in finding out more about invasives, it would be totally worth the money because um, they'll have, well, basically it's four days of you know, all this kind of stuff. And it's everything from the animal. Uh, wild boar are a big problem right now in Alberta and Saskatchewan, uh, Manitoba. So they'll be talking about things like that, as well as the plants and also the waterways like Kevin was discussing. So they'll get into the how to keep your boats and equipment clean and what things to look for in the waterways. But um, there's a lot of different 
uh, informative venues like that that can help. And the other thing is to know your county that you live in. Because in, I live in Parkland County. Most of the things are the same as the city of Edmonton, but there's a few differences because as you go from county to county, just from sheer area and space and everything, uh, some of the species can change a little. Like, um, do you know what are what's one of the worst species in your your area? Like one of the worst invasives uh, the, that the uh, city of Edmonton really frowns upon right now? Either of you? Like as a prohibited noxious? Yeah, or? like noxious, like just absolute prohibited noxious, bad, bad, invasive, warrant out for it. <laughs> I feel like I should know that. <laughs> well, I mean, there's there's more than one, right? I'm just wondering for an example to compare to what's out in Parkland here. Oh, what's, what is that? Uh, creeping bellflower? I know that's a nasty oh, one. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and of course, <laughs> I remember my uh, my grandmother she she had it started off with one she had one she's like oh it's so pretty because it is in the campanula family so the the canterbury bells there's so many other garden variety campanulas so she's like oh it's such a nice little blue flower where i'm like no no get it out burn it kill it whatever you got to do because all it takes it's very much like the thistles one little bit and it just spreads some more and yeah um let's see um, I'm just thinking. South thistle, I know that's one. Camel mile, scentless camel mile, cockle, white cockle. Oh yes, remember dealing with those in a certain place. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Uh knotweed. Japanese knotweed. Mm-hmm. Uh orange hawkweed, Himalayan balsam. I haven't really seen that one, but actually what's funny is I haven't seen it around here, but a little bit farther west of, of us. Uh there was a friend of ours. We went through the yard. She's showing me her garden and everything, saying, you know, oh, look at right. I'm like, oh, this is great. And then I saw these pink flowers and I'm like, those ones are invasive. So you should really rip them out of your garden. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, ah, yeah. But um, I know one that's prevalent around and here. And loose strife. Oh, yeah. Loose strife. And, and some of these, like the, um, the cockle and the wild chamomile or, or whatever. Scentless um, chamomile. Scentless chamomile. That's it. They have really close lookalikes that are perfectly harmless. So again, this is where being able to ID these is a, a fabulous thing because it sucked to be ripping out something that's actually native, at least not invasive. And then you find out you've got the wrong one or something. Yeah, I know that orange hawkweed, when I first came to Steve's, there was, there was these cute little orange flowers growing on his lawn. And I thought, Wow, it's not very often I see really, really dark, dark orange flowers that are that are native, and I thought they're really cute. So I start collecting a bit of seed, and then I look them up. And I'm like, damn it! So then it's like, rip them all out, mow everything. <laughs> Just <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh dear. But yeah, um, tansy is another bad one out here. Mm. I, I don't know if you guys have problems with that one in town so much or not. But not that's too the, much where I'm at, but. I know and it so, can be an issue. It's it's kind of a double-edged sword, that one, because on the one hand, tansy, they got, you know, okay, yellow flowers. Some people like to have it in their garden. But the other thing is um, it makes a really good insecticide, uh, like insect repellent. Because if you have a stand of tansy in an area, you usually find that the mosquitoes aren't there, the flies aren't there. Like, sure, there's other insects, but it repels those particular ones. And so you sit there going, oh, why do you have to be invasive? <laughs> but that's one of those situations where 
okay, well, if you're going to help, like cut it down or whatever, so it can't go to seed. But then um, as long as there's no flowers or seed heads in the in the stalks, then you could chop up the stalks and use them for insect repellent or something, right? So you can get a mm-hmm. extra, extra use out of it, maybe. But, uh, but Grind yeah, it down like and that. make a little powder to yeah. <laughs> just put on yourself or something. Yeah. Just ask all the little bugs to open up. Can you eat some of this, please? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> no, there's lots of beneficial insects, too. It's just some of them that are a problem. Because, again, I know the swallows love them and the bats and the dragonflies, but I could really just do without mosquitoes. I really could. I'm sure there's something else those other creatures could eat. <laughs> there has to be. <laughs> yeah, so there's a, a lot of a lot of different invasives, but find out what's invasive in your area and be able to recognize them or or at least access somebody that can. And the other part of that is report sightings to your county office because if it's especially if it's in a public area, they can have a team of people come out to assess and possibly get rid of them appropriately. Or if it's on your property, uh, they can, or again, somebody like Dan uh, can at least give you good consultation so that you know how to deal with them appropriately. And it's also uh, really good for them to build up information maps because the more information they have about where these invasives are, no, unlike what people are thinking, it's not Brig Brothers trying to get a handle on watching over you and they're not going to come send drones <laughs> and all stuff. It's actually so they can get a better idea of how these invasives are migrating, procreating, which invasives are more prevalent. It also is, again, like I was saying before, a fluid list. So sometimes an invasive gets removed off the list because it's either been eradicated or no longer a problem or... This is something that you guys might be able to help explain a bit. When something becomes naturalized, so sometimes when they found that a species, it doesn't belong there in that native habitat, but maybe it's not as big of a problem as a a really aggressive invasive, or over time it's just, it's been there so long, it's just kind of fitting in now with the the rest of the the ecosystem. In that case, you've got... um, what do you call them? Uh, naturalized, yeah. I know if you can speak more to the naturalized part of things. Like an like I guess what, what <laughs> an example. Well, no, an example of something that is is we have that's no longer considered invasive, but maybe it's it's naturalized now. It's not it's not considered the big red alert. It doesn't. It's not from here, but it's also not something that everybody's just rooting out and digging out, killing everything for. <laughs> Clover. Yeah, I guess because yeah, that's yeah. not really. <laughs> yeah, I don't because supposed I'd, to be here, but I think you can correct me if I'm wrong. But I don't think there's a single species of clover that's actually native to Alberta, is there? I, I mean, like they're all kind of in the pea family, I think. But oh, I mean, wait. that's so broad. Oh, okay, uh, right. So, of course, the when I think of clover, I think of the ones that they have for um, forage crops and that kind of thing. Duh. So the we do have purple prairie clover, like there's a, a couple clovers that are native. They're usually prairie clovers. I, I was on the same train of thought as yeah. you when you're, I thought you were talking kind of your forages, like your alfalfas yeah. and stuff like but, that. But, 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 but basically there's only a couple and then the rest of them are totally non, like the yellow and white sweet clovers, the red clover, the white clover, like all those are introduced species and they were introduced as forage crops. So mm-hmm. 
So they were introduced intentionally. <laughs> and what's funny now is in some cases, the clovers can be dis- considered a good thing because they're nitrogen fixers and they're good forage crops and blah, blah, blah. And in other cases, um, I think you experience this with alfalfa or whatever, that in some places it's a pain in the butt because it's uh, wreaking havoc for natives in certain spots, right? Well, because they are pretty good at spreading, <laughs> creating its own little uh, low growing uh, cover area, which I mean, like if, if you do want that to be in a certain area, I mean, they're great for that. But yeah, if you're wanting to try to get natives established and they're kind of just overtaking a certain area, yeah, sometimes they could be uh, detrimental because <laughs> they're basically blocking out any chance, especially if you want to get like new things growing and you already have clover established. Yeah. Um, sometimes they might just, you know, outcompete for resources, but then also just covering for like stuff like light for little seedlings that are trying to grow underneath native ones, that is. Yeah. So if yeah. you're wanting a cover crop, clover might not be your best bet because then when you go to remove it, you might not be able to get rid of it. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah. But if, and you, then, if you want to harvest it, I mean, sure, you sure. definitely have an easy time trying to grow it. Well, and what's funny is farmers generally use it as a forage crop, but it's not really good for a hay because of the moisture content and the fact that it tends to mold easy. You know, unless you're constantly having it grazed down, that's the only way you can really control it. Otherwise, like they can't, they don't normally mow it to cut it for hay. And then with the white and the sweet clovers, they have a taproot that goes down so deep. I think it go down like 10 meters. Uh, same thing with the alfalfa because originally there were... Um, I believe desert, like out in the Middle East, um, that's where alfalfa came from anyway. And so they got to go down so, so far for water and nutrients, which again, it's double-edged sore because on the one hand, if they're in one of our environments, they can help bring those nutrients in the water up to the surface where it's more accessible to other plants. But the downside is they're pigs and they'll probably use most of the nutrients themselves and then there won't be anything for the other plants anyway. So... So yeah, it makes it uh, interesting. But yeah, there are a couple native prairie clovers, uh, but the rest of them are are non-natives. And again, in, in the right situation, fixers. yeah, in the, <laughs> in the right them. situation, they can be helpful. In the wrong situation, they can be a pain in the butt. So it's again, just know what your your situation's needs are. Um, then uh, yeah, uh, I don't know if there's any other points that you guys have that I probably missed about invasives or what people's perspectives are with them or or even if you wanted to talk about a particular perceived invasive any of that's fine by me i think that's a good start it's such a broad topic i almost it is should try for probably another few episodes well at least another episode you can do some branching off episodes to other things but um so i think what you got today was pretty good because we took like i think we talked i mean we got the basics down i think pretty well for people yeah. to kind of understand uh, what invasives are and kind of ways to control it and kind of stuff that's in and around here in Edmonton, Alberta. Yeah. yeah and I'm, I, I'm, I'm not trying to create like mass hysteria panic, like, oh my God, every single weed thing and, and thing that doesn't belong here got to get rid of. But at the same time, just be aware and educated uh, because there are some ever-evolving plants and animals that are becoming more of a problem and some that are becoming less of a problem. So it's just staying up to date on how, how these lists are evolving uh, because, like I was saying, with the climate sh- shifting and everything, things that weren't a problem 10 years ago maybe are now a problem and other things that were a problem are no longer a problem. So, but yeah, 
So that's our, uh, I guess we'll, we'll come up with some ingenious title, but our invasive uh, podcast, kind of our entry level, get your feet wet into the topic. We'll get more in depth with certain portions of it in the future. But thank you for tuning in. And uh, we look forward to having you guys listen to our next podcast of our uh, green scene and our plant adventure guide, as well as our regular bigger topic tackling ones. And of course, as always, I thank my hosts, Dan and Kevin, because without you, well, I would just be me and that wouldn't be very fun, would it? (laughs) That's not. I had fun. Yeah, so it's actually it's always fun with you guys. I I feel a little bit guilty because I think really one of the one of the main reasons why we started this is because uh, COVID. You know, you're kind of stuck at home, so you, we wanted something interesting and fun to do. And this has been a lot of fun. We've been able to meet some new people and learn some new information. And also, um, I think all of us indirectly, in one way or another, we like to share our, our knowledge and and help teach other people and learn so we're hoping we can do that for some of you guys out there and if any of you have um i don't know little anecdotes or information or pictures or anything you want to share with us uh kevin loves the, his twitter account so i hear have you been twittering lately tweeting whatever no, you call it <laughs> no not lately i have been i don't know i haven't found any topic to tweet about but oh yeah but so, if i see something then i will well maybe just post a, a picture of one invasive and then watch what everybody does and it'll start just this whole slew of comments or something <laughs> i don't know yeah i'm i mean i'm on i'm on facebook well all of us are on facebook and we have our websites but uh it's there's a lot when you're managing a small business to try and juggle a lot of hats. So kudos to Kevin for attempting the Twitter because I, the, I tell you between the podcast and the Facebook, that's as far as I can go. <laughs> but anyway, again, yes. Thank you as always for tuning in. Hope to hear from you all next week. <laughs>